I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode 15 of season one, featuring special guest Suzanne Wolf on Augustine and historical fiction. Today's episode was originally recorded on April 21st, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whip and Stock Publishers, who published my 2015 book, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the Human Person. Give us this day, daily prayer for today's Catholic. The Institute for Christian Socialism, building a movement of the ecumenical Christian left. Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedal Board Solutions. Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for black Catholics. Where Peter is, there is the church, the Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos, and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Solidarity Hall. Their wonderful motto is Eden plus Utopia. I described them last week as a unicorn in the sense of being a, a rare and in some sense impossible thing in the world today and in particular in the world of online letters. Perhaps another thing this image invokes though, or evokes, is the place for the imagination and, and the active central place of the human imagination within social, political, and also literary and artistic endeavors and works. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think that today as we enter into an episode that sends us back into the literary, imaginative, historical uh, dimensions of, uh, of the show, as we've seen in previous episodes as well, uh, I think Solidarity Hall is a wonderful companion once again on this journey and allows us to perhaps meditate a bit more deeply on their somewhat aphoristic, enigmatic, fascinating motto, Eden plus Utopia. You can find links to Solidarity Hall, as well as to all of our wonderful sponsors, in the show notes. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please consider sharing this episode with someone. Subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and try to leave us a review <coughs> or a rating, or you can even drop a tip of appreciation. You can find Folk Phenomenology on social media with accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Interacting with us there, in particular on Twitter, I believe, is especially helpful for the podcast. Today we are going to have a conversation with the author Suzanne Wolf. She allows for us to go deep into her own text, which itself is... Uh, exploration of one of the great texts uh, that we have, the text of Augustine's Confessions, but she plums that text even more deeply into 
um, Augustine's biography through the means and the tool of historical fiction. I learned so much in this episode. I have to say, I also enjoyed so much some of the push and pull and the gusto that Suzanne uh, welcomed some uh, considered objections and above all, the wonderful gift she has given us here with the readings that she gave us. There were some connection issues, uh, and those are technical issues that I promise to uh, not replicate in season two. But nonetheless, I believe that this uh, episode deepens and extends not only this fundamental relation between the word and the world, but also appreciation for the expression of delight in the word and therefore the world, dilexit. Mundum. Today we have Suzanne Wolf on Folk Phenomenology. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on to my show. Thank you, Sam. I um, I tend to keep these introductions fairly non-institutional, and at some level, the the idea of folk phenomenology is to meet the person. Um, in your work and in your writing, uh, one of your particular works, though, introduces us to a person uh, in, a, in a fairly, I think, uh, unique and I would also say radical way. And here I'm thinking of your novel, The Confessions of X. Um, I know it's not the most recent work, but you and I share an affection for Augustine. And I recall at the time when your book was coming out, I was f- uh, finishing up the, the work on my album uh late to love which is an augustinian soul album so ever since that happened i wanted to talk about uh that novel with you and i'm just thrilled to have you here today so i wonder if you could tell us a little bit um maybe about uh that particular work itself the person uh behind it x and then we might maybe transition into a more general discussion about historical fiction and about your writing in general, where I'd be happy to hear, you know, obviously more things in this, about your most recent book as well. Yeah, well, Sam, thank you. Um, yes, uh, my books. I am most um, fond of the Confessions of X, I think, because because of, of the character. And the character X is the concubine of St. Augustine of Hippo. And we only know her uh, as Una, the one uh, in the confessions. She is never named. And the interesting thing about that is that, um, you know, a lot of people have thought, well, she doesn't name, he doesn't name her because, um, you know, Exist. Um, but that's not true. Uh, the great biographer of Augustine, Peter Brown, um, posits that he does not name her because she was still living and mm-hmm. that he knew uh, right away that the Confessions was going to be a sort of mega hit. Mm-hmm. And he preserves her privacy. Mm-hmm. And I agree. There's no, there's no actual documentary proof of this. But um, if you look at the way he names Monica, for example, the way sure. he names Nebridius, the way he names um, Ambrose, 
all of these characters were deceased when he wrote the confessions mm -hmm. and so he felt free to to use their names so the inference is that um x was una was uh still living sure um, of course he also names their son adeodatus yes that's right yeah. uh gift of god or mm -hmm. given by god mm -hmm. that's what his name means and also tragically taken by God right. um, because he died young. Yeah, 16. And that's that's also, of course, in the novels. So um, yes, I was uh, I, w I was enthralled by the past uh, when I was a child. Um, for what reason I don't know. Perhaps it had something to do with. Um, the fact that I grew up in England and all around me were historical um, and Roman ruins and, you know, Tudor houses and medieval houses and churches. And these buildings were were still lived in. Um, they, they still had a sense of life to them. Mm. And I absorbed that very deeply. Um, uh, and it's that, um, and the other the other reason too, I think, is that I I felt that very strongly that these people who had lived in these homes uh, and walked in these gardens, um, they were very much alive, even though. It was, they were 400 years dead. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that very much. Um, and I, I, I just had a fascination for really the people who lived in the past. And I always felt that they were close to me, similar to me. Um, mm. not distant at all or as Barbara Tuckman says a distant mirror um, and um, so when I was in when I was in religion class at my convent school um, I remember raising my hand and asking who the mysterious woman was uh -huh. Una in Augustine's Confessions and I remember clearly Sister Bernadette said no one knows she is lost to history. And that phrase, lost to history, stayed with me because, partly because history to me was not lost, it was there, mm. it was to me. So over the years, 40 years ago now, I thought often of all the great women in history whose lives have been eclipsed by the men they loved, mm -hmm. overshadowed. And I wanted to give them a voice. And as my twin loves are literature and history, I thought, well, what better way than a novel? So I decided to go looking for the concubine so she could tell her story. And as nothing is known of her, not even her name, my only way to do this was to research Augustine and his works and then build up a picture of him. And the blank space in the picture was the concubine. Yeah. A quick note on... Uh, um, uh, in, in, during this time, historically, 
Uh, I know that the word concubine to the modern ear uh, hits it a bit to one side, but of course this would this was a common sort of common law uh, marriage type relationship that we see throughout the ancient world, right? That's exactly right. I mean, to our contemporary ears, as you say, concubine is synonymous with mistress mm-hmm. or even prostitute. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the ancient world, um, this wasn't the case. The 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 reason I liken the concubine to a common law wife is that concubinage involved a sexual relationship when the man and women woman were not or could not be married right. for reasons of social class or dif- difference in rank. Right. Um, and this was almost always due to a man of higher social status falling mm-hmm. in love with a woman of low social status. Mm-hmm. Um, and this and is course, ultimately in in your book. This is kind of the crux of 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 the of of their incompatibility. It's this it's this difference in class. It seems that's it. Um, I mean, they. I have in my novel that that Augustine is is honest with the concubine about their relationship and what it could be and what it could never be mm. and a lot and many people today think that monica is the sort of the evil evil uh, mother-in-law here mm. uh trying to arrange the marriage um later um <clears throat> when augustine was in milan um and um but this was this was accepted. This was, this was what, you know, marriage was a different kind of thing. It was, mm-hmm. it was more of a sort of sociological, economic mm-hmm. union. Yeah. Um, very rarely was it a love match, um, and so Augustine always knew that this was a possibility. He tr- he he successfully avoided it for a long time mm-hmm. um, but he finally could not avoid it and it, it, it's interesting because it was father of the girl that he was engaged to that insisted that he send away the concubine mm. and and the father would not allow the engagement unless he did so so he was forced to um and he he was devastated he he says in the one of the few things he says directly about the concubine is that when she left her ship and she sailed back to Carthage and he says a trail of blood was left in its wake the mm-hmm. wake of the ship because it's like they were torn apart mm. and bled to death, mm-hmm. um, which is very powerful. It is, and this is one of the things that I loved about your the the tone of of, of the novel, um, and, and I, I can't agree with it more. I, I just I'm having a hard time not pulling out just generic superlatives for it because. You know, Augustine these days is often um, 
in popular uh, in, in the popular imaginary to the extent that he's remembered at all he's recalled as a kind of guy with a sex hang-up who is severe and who is um, constantly confessing his sins and this and that but Augustine is a profoundly passionate man uh, yes. uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a man for whom love is arguably the most central has the most central place in his metaphysics and his theology and his ecclesiology I mean love is at the core of everything for him um, and I think you really presented him as a lover I mean in some sense literally but I mean this in a more broad sense um, yes you recover great, that he was a great friend for yes, example yes yeah yeah I mean this is this is so interesting in the Middle Ages um, when you see um, depictions of of say the crucifixion and with sort of sundry saints on either side mm -hmm. whenever you see Augustine he's he's holding a heart because he was known as the saint of love mm -hmm. in the in the middle ages mm -hmm. and um, there was no sort of irony in that um, right. for them he right. he it was all love it was love of god it was love of erotic love it was yeah. um it was love of you know agape um it's interesting i mean part of the problem of augustine's reputation today i think is that um his most famous work the confessions um the confessions meant in, in his day, the Confessions was not salacious um, at all. It was, it was penitential. Mm. Um, the whole point about the Confessions is to make a confession of one's life uh, and lay it all out in the sort of Catholic tradition. You lay it all out. Um, and he's, he'll be forever known for this, for his notorious words, you know, God make me chaste, but yeah, not yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, and if you combine this with the way Augustine has been caricatured as a promiscuous person who then became a sort of repressive moralist, um, you get, you know, the contemporary view of Augustine that all these he gave it all up and then he wagged the finger at everybody for it but yeah, this yeah, is yeah. this is completely completely wrong um he, he was humorous he was fiercely intelligent one of the most intelligent men of his time he was even genius um and he was passionate um, and he was brutally honest about his own shortcomings, um, even in a way too honest. I mean, the way that that St. Paul, you know, says, oh, I am the chiefest of sinners, and mm -hmm. everyone's piled on and said, look what an egotist he is, right, you know. Right, right, right. But, but I think that misses the point. The point is that Augustine knew very wasn't, the chiefest of sinners in that respect mm -hmm. um but he he i think the intensity to which he describes his life is be is because he has the revelation that at every single moment of his life 
um, not just after his conversion, but before his conversion, sure. there are seeds of God's grace and God's love, and he is intent on on discovering these. Um, and he's just filled with like wonder um, that God meets us in our lives, not you know, aside from our lives, not with our lives on hold or canceled out, but actually in our lives. And so for the for the concubine, you know, I said to myself, well, we know that she was of a lower social class. We know that as a woman, she was probably illiterate but not stupid mm-hmm. what who is the kind of woman who this extraordinary man would fall deeply in love with and stay mm-hmm. faithful to for 17 years yeah. and that was the basis of my window into mm-hmm. the concubine that's that's so powerful especially because well there's there's almost two roads here that come to my mind the first is that you could have uh, <laughs> You could have excoriated Augustine on behalf of X, right? How could you leave her, right? Those things. But here, even just listening to you now, the sense of your your affection and understanding and and affectionate understanding of Augustine is so clear, as it is in the novel as well. and then the second the, the second road that I think of, and oftentimes this is what happens, is I, I come up with a pair of thoughts and I leave them to you to decide how to <laughs> distill them. But, the, you know, when I saw that, when I just saw the title at the, at the first time, The Confessions of X, I thought it was a book about Malcolm X. Huh, right. And, and, and to me, there was, there, there is a sliver of that intuition left in the sense that Malcolm X was very clear that the reason he took the name X was because he had no name. His name had been taken from him by shadow slavery, by the transatlantic slave trade. And so instead of, you know, insert some new name, he chose to take this name. But he also said something else, and this is the part that people miss. He said, because my name is X, I may have no name, but it also means I am X. I'm an every man. I have right. every name under the sun. And so he found power in that nothingness. He found that power in that absence. Mm-hmm. And and in many ways, to me, this is the tragedy of his visit to Mecca and the fact that he, I think he got a glimpse in Mecca of a much more global universalist idea of humanity that mm-hmm. had he lived, we might have seen. I wonder mm-hmm. on this other road, uh, the first road being that you didn't uh, take Augustine to task, <laughs> but the second road being the road of of Una's absence. I wonder. I, I I do just have a curiosity if there's more potential resonance or analogical uh, comparison to this sensibility that Malcolm X had in the in the kind of Xness, so to speak, of his name. Or maybe I'm just uh, making up uh, pairings there. <laughs> No, I mean that that had occurred to me. Uh, not not the Malcolm X connection, but the idea of that um, a woman, in a sense, um, because you know women are by and large ignored by history. Um, they have been in, they have been put in the background because men have written the history books. Um, 
and there's, it's very, very clear. Um, and this is unjust. Um, but at the same time, interestingly, this sort of invisibility, and by the way, I'm fascinated by the theme of invisibility, sure. um, the, the sort of the negative space. So we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But, but this invisibility <clears throat> also does give her that, that sort of every woman sort of status and also in a way like with Mary the mother of Jesus allows her in her sort of hiddenness hmm. to overflow the the sort of the the finite mold that we might be tempted to put her in she overflows it. She's bigger than that. She moves her in throughout. And same as the concubine, that I hope that the novel shows that, that the concubine informed his love his relationship with her and her and her love and her relationship and their son that sort mm -hmm. of trinity mm -hmm. informed his thought in informed his heart yeah in a way so that he did convert um the him more than he taught her in a strange way. And I sort of, I believe that about Mary, the mother of Jesus, mm -hmm. is that when we see Jesus, we're seeing her. Now the feminists would say, well, to heck with that. Why don't we see her and have Jesus in the background? But mm -hmm. I don't think it's a competition. I think this is beautiful symbiosis of, sure. of love. Um, and that sort of relative invisibility in some ways, uh, the mystery of that um, in some ways makes, makes the concubine more powerful, um, more mysterious, more paradoxical. Sure. Um, and, and resists stereotyping. Right, and I think that's one of the most difficult one of the, I mean, I don't share the view of a lot of historians who claim that any attempt to make sense of the past in light of contemporary life is just throwaway presentism. Whereas on the other hand, I, I also realize that if we truly want to understand another time, we have to kind of be willing to encounter it. Um, exactly in, in, a, in its own sense and I think that that can even flow and seep into into our own time opening our own eyes in many cases I wonder if the theme of invisibility raises and maybe here I'll, I'll kind of uh, provoke a bit this uh, I can hear I, I, I'm always like considering objections right it's a philosophical habit um, mm -hmm. and so I can hear this critic listening in to this conversation um, where we're speaking about reality here. We're talking about the Augustine, you know, the authorized biographical Augustine. We're talking about Una and X, 
um, in, in, in realist terms. Mm-hmm. Yet the critic might say, but this is a work of fiction. So what? Mm-hmm. H- how in the world <laughs> are we to trust uh, this conversation uh, to be true, given that it's uh, ultimately delivered in the form of uh, a novel? Uh, and I wonder if fiction might be a way to get into invisibility and revelation and some of these ideas here. Well, the, the first thing I would respond with is that um, it's a mistake to think that truth is scientific, literal fact. Um, uh, truth is, uh, is not just grasped by, by reason, it's grasped by the imagination. Hmm. And in fact, um, I think fiction can be more true mm-hmm. um, than, than, say, you know, uh, uh, fact. Um, sure. Right. I mean. Yeah. I mean. I mean. <laughs> you know, an example of that would be: How come at night uh, I can see things clearly out of the corner of my eye, uh, but not directly? Well, of course, science would say: Well, that's because the rods and cones in in your eye um, are picking up are, are dense densely at the corners um, and uh, uh, and that's a survival uh, technique to for our peripheral vision um, sure. um, but to me there's another truth to that and that is that often uh, if we see something clearly we can't do it directly we, mm. we do it we do it we catch a glimpse of it in our peripheral sort of vision um, of our mind or our heart or our yeah. soul, yeah. and uh, of course that's why um, that's what um, that's what Emily Dickinson meant when she said "tell it slant." Uh, uh-huh. That's that's why uh, a little plug for um, the publishing company that uh, Greg Wolf, my mm-hmm. husband, and I mm-hmm. uh, have started mm-hmm. uh, is called Slant. Um, because we see things indirectly, and of course, so so. All right. Um, the second thing is that uh, in the novel, almost every single word that comes out of Augustine's dialogue is taken from his letters, his sermons, or his mm-hmm. confessions. Mm-hmm. So they're literally his words. I'm paraphrasing, um, of course, mm-hmm. um, and you know, but about eighty-five percent are literally his words. Mm. Um, and um, of course, certain episodes um, that we know from, you know, the confessions are also documented. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a it took me four years to research and four years to write hmm. so eight years total and um, the research the historical research is meticulous um, but but my goal is for it not to read like a history book sure <laughs> sure or a hagiography hey, hey, sure either. sure. I mean, um, I love the way, uh, you know, certain, certain people, whenever the critic arrives, um, 
uh, respond very differently, and you you really it really put you into another gear there. I'm, I'm tempted to to return to my to my critic friend. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Bring yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's oh man, that's so fun. Um, I'm the same way, by the way. I actually yeah. I'm much better if I'm pushed. So, so concretely speaking, just just by way of of not hiding behind the, the, the critic. So I remember I read Between the World and Me, I think, or what is it, um, by Bruce Duffy, um, mm-hmm. The World as I Found It. The World as I Found It. I have read it. Yeah. Uh, it's a historical fiction novel on, on Wittgenstein, in particular ah. on the relationship between Wittgenstein, G.E. Moore, and Bertrand Russell. And it kind of came out right around the same time, I think, that Ray Monk's uh, The Duty of Genius came out, which is the kind of kind of the now recognized like great you know intellectual philosophical biography of Ludwig Wittgenstein and the the issue there is that Duffy Duffy's presentation of Wittgenstein was so historically uh faithful to Mm. to the facts and to 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 the manuscripts and stuff that the um that the fictional sides were hard to detect and it fooled full-blown Wittgensteinian uh, philosophers and hi- historians of ideas and and it, and it just it, it royally pissed off a lot of people <laughs> because they were fooled <laughs> <laughs> I, it was because they were fooled but they but they attacked they attacked uh, 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 Duffy saying you know this is this is wrong this is inappropriate you've uh. you've uh, you know in some sense it was almost an attack on historical fiction as an idea yeah. now I yeah. want to say here again to put uh, to, to put this uh, so-called critic a little bit more to task, when I composed this full-length studio album on the confessions, mm-hmm. I got a lot of questions afterwards about the fact that for me, I was not working um, textually. I was working thematically across mm-hmm. themes that I found. And, and in many cases, there's a track called Genesis Time where I wanted to capture the rigor I detected not only in Augustine's discussion of the scripture of Genesis in books, you know, 11 through 13, but mm-hmm. in particular his discourse on time. Yeah. Which, which to me... Which mo- most people skip, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I wanted to... And so what I did is I structured that track in a very meticulous... It's the most meticulously structured piece in terms of the chronological time of the track. Um, but that was not a, I wasn't quoting a famous line. I wasn't using Latin. I wasn't relying on anything. And so I had some people kind of say like, well, you shouldn't call this Augustinian. You should find something else because you're, it's too loose. Right. And so I think you are much closer to Duffy's approach to like historical fiction here than my approach. But nonetheless, it does, I think, um, I think it raises questions in particular to the modern reader who's so used to a literalist, yeah. materialist even, engagement. Yeah. So I know you've already answered the question, but I think it bears repeating a bit and maybe extending a bit more how you as a novelist do not see yourself, just like I as a musician didn't see myself as off amusing myself expressively with like I really believe it was an exegesis on the confessions and I'll, and I'll defend that I get the right. sense that you feel the same way about your work but there's a lot out there who only want to hear from the scholars of, of religion and the the Latinists and so on 
Well, I mean, partly it's the age-old sort of, uh, well, we'll only we'll only trust the facts, just the facts, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Um, and these artists, these imaginative people are dangerous or kooky or, you know, and we can sort of marginalize them. Um, uh, you know, I, I, my response is, um, I hope, a kind of balance. I mean... I mean, on the one hand, I I am horrified when I read, say, for example, and I'm going to get burned at the stake for this, but um, <laughs> but never mind. I, I'm always like, go bring your marshmallows. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> um, I I'm horrified uh, at the kind of hatchet job that Hillary Mantle does um, to Cromwell, um, or rather the, the, the sort of hagiography of Cromwell and the hatchet job she does to, say, uh, Sir Thomas More. Um, it, she's clearly ideologically um, driven, mm. and she's um, she is approaching history um, with a sort of instrumentalist, um, well, an instrumentalist approach. She's using it um, as sort of clay to to make into whatever she wants. Mm-hmm. Um, in clear, in clear uh, contradistinction of the facts. Now, a historical fiction writer, I believe, has to have a deep respect for the historical record. Sure, sure. And um, cannot simply, um, you know, change somebody's whole character just because they believe that, you know, sort of they have an ideological axe to grind. Um, And so there's that. On the other hand... Um, and what is the other hand? Um, I, I, I believe that one can, that, that, that as Barbara Tuckman said, and I quoted her earlier, a distant mirror, um, mm-hmm. that, that the historical fiction writer or the historical, if you like, musician, <laughs> in some degree is interpreting the figure or the work only i believe after a, an honest and vigorous attempt to deeply understand mm-hmm. and to encounter that person or that and that work right. um we can't help we are here in the 21st century um, that, you know, here we are and we have a certain modern contemporary sensibility sure. but, but, but the historian has to make a strenuous imaginative effort to understand another person and that's that's partly agape. I mean, hmm. do that for 
we're being asked to do that as we rightly should be asked to do that for other ethnicities mm-hmm. but why not the people of the past sure it's it's so right now um i'm hearing an echo of sorts i had katherine addington uh she's finishing up her phd at the university of virginia uh and she's mm. a translator of uh san rafael aranis uh, mm. a carmelite um a, a contemporary 20th century uh, uh carmelite i believe and um and we talked about well translation mm. But we, mm-hmm. we ended our conversation talking about the sense in which translation is an act of love. Um, That's right. And, and I wonder here if there's, if there's room to, um, uh, to think about this. Uh, I love this, the idea of the historical musician. I've never, I've never associated those words with that work, <laughs> so I'm going to chew on that. I, I wonder about this sense of history you're talking about, which has room for the for the arts and for li- the literary and, and and all these things within it, um, the degree to which it, it it is, yes, interpretation. I agree, but th- I'm also hearing you say it's also translation. Where yes, the translator I think quite different from maybe the the merely interpreter, especially in the modern sense of interpretation. Mm-hmm. You are in some sense bound by your author for whom you're kind of transporting them in this passage from one language into another and you're not allowed uh, because that's one thing that that I I hope is clear I might have maybe overextended it for dramatic purposes but I felt more duty bound to represent Augustine's confessions than if I had been just quoting lines and verses Right, exactly. Because I was taking all of these liberties. So for me, license was was not detached from responsibility here. That's right. Um, That's right. And, and the thing is that we have the great, you know, the great writers, the great, you know, musicians, the great artists, they're, they're not propagandists. They're, they, they're not instrumentalists. Mm. They don't want to use somebody for their own purposes. Um, if they, you know, and and unfortunately today that seems to be a kind of fad. Um, mm. And to me, that's just a failure of imagination. Um, mm. You know, it's so much easier to sort of say, for example, teach the Merchant of Venice. Uh, you know, as some kind of, you know, do a hatchet job because of the treatment of Shylock. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, uh, it, it's so much easier um, to sort of beat somebody to death with a sort of ideological club sure. rather than make the, uh, again, I'll use that phrase, that strenuous imagination to understand the historical context mm. and and the writer, um, and, um, and this idea of translation is very interesting because in my historical historical uh, Elizabethan uh, murder mysteries, um, I always get reviews on Amazon that say, "Oh well, you know." 
there are a couple of places where you know the language is is not Elizabethan. It's it's uh, you know 18th century or modern. Uh-huh. And, and I I said uh, at my um, in my uh, course of all treasons, um, I put it. I I said in my afterward. I tried mm. to sort of. This is your most recent book, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I tried to say something about that. I say, um, um, oh, where is it? Let me let me have a quick look here because I haven't read it for ages. No, that's great. Well, <laughs> this will be the first reading on folk phenomenology. I'm very excited. Well, well, I I was uh, I was I was only going to read a bit of the afterword, Please but do. I can read a bit from sure. Confessions or whichever you like. Um, <laughs> But I, I, I say the historical novelist is like a camera trying to focus on the distant scene of the past. Mm. Sometimes the image can become blurred because it is too remote, the historical facts too alien to our own time. Sometimes it is too close, the characters too contemporary for them to be true to their mm. own era. The trick is to find that sweet spot between fact and fiction that will bring the image into sharp relief. Mm. Consequently, and this is where the the translation bit is, consequently I have mingled documented facts and real historical figures with fictional characters and events. Even the language my characters speak is a blend of period diction and a more contemporary rendering in order to make Elizabethan speech more familiar mm-hmm. to the modern ear. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's so interesting and, and kind of ironic that um, the same people that fault me for not saying prithy and anon and and verily, a good sirs. Um, in other words, a kind of pastiche Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> um, they also tried me for misspelling Covent Garden hmm. because I spell it Covent Garden. And the reason I spell it Convent Garden is not because it's a typo, Cov- the present-day Covent Garden is is situated in the gardens of a convent that Henry VIII confiscated. Okay. And at the time of the Elizabethans, it was still convent. It didn't uh-huh. become covent gotcha. until the 18th century. Yes. So it's funny, you know, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, basically. Sure. <laughs> well, I tell you what, that passage you just read... Um, uh, for one, I, th- I think it's it's definitely an effective, argumentative di- uh, reply to that particular dispute. But if I may highlight, I think, the front part, which was not the one that you were highlighting, actually, you've also there captured something that, um, you know, this show is called Folk Phenomenology, and I always say, I think I even told you over email, the folk is a reference in some ways to Louis Armstrong, and he played mm-hmm. folk music as music for folks. <clears throat> my good critics um, say, okay, that's fine. Now do phenomenology. And 
I often don't want to get into it because it's such a big, atrocious word, and you know, um, things can get very boring and very uh, heavy very fast. But that description you gave of finding that perfect place between fact and fiction, and in particular the the ocular sense of zooming in and out, um, this to me is exactly the kind of descriptive core of what the study of phenomena or the study of things is really about. And right. the method of reduction is about, just like in cooking, it's about diminishing something to a point that it doesn't disappear, but where the depth is increased to the point at which it's more itself than it was when you began kind of a thing, like pouring a bottle of wine into a pot and then slowly reducing it, you know. Um, and, and I think that that sense of balance, but also I've, I've talked to students before in classes about how if it's a foggy day outside and I want to take a clear picture, if the image renders the foggy day clear, it's a poor rendering of the reality of the day because the day was unclear. That's what right. foggy is. Right. So a good foggy picture, a good rendering of a foggy picture exposes the foggy day and all of its fogginess. Yes. which may appear in the final result incredibly unclear, but that lack of clarity is itself a form of clarity. Exactly. Right? Yes. And, yes. and, and oftentimes they puzzle over this, but I feel like in that in the, those early passages you read, moving into then your more direct contestation on the issue of language, you've really captured a truly phenomenological uh, uh, sensibility about description and truth and reality. Uh, it's, I just really, I resonated with that very strongly. Right, and, and that is the essence of translation. Um, and in a way, the historical novelist is translating um, not just the language, but the people. Um, it is a kind of, it's an act of translation mm -hmm. um, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, taking one language and putting it in another language and trying very, very hard not to lose any right. meaning, right. Um, but to contain the meaning in this sort of net. Um, I don't know, um, I, I could read a little something of X, um, if you like, a, a very small scene. Please do. Um, if, and it's, uh, it's a scene that is very, very ordinary, um, uh, but of great significance to Augustine and X. Um, and it's uh, right in the middle of the book. Okay. Um, when Augustine returned at sunset, he found our apartment a different place. Many lamps from the neighboring apartments had been brought in and all were lit. The inside of the bedchamber was bright as day and stifling. There had been no question of getting Neath up all those stairs to the fourth floor to her own apartment, so I had helped her into mine and laid her on our bed. I was seated on the edge of the bed holding Neath's arm. Tazin was seated on the opposite side holding the other. When she reared forward in agony, we braced her and held her up. She had been laboring like this for hours. And for hours, her blood had flowed from her body, a deadly little stream, the merest trickle, but dark as heart blood, dark as art. 
dark. Her face was waxen and bloated, unrecognizable, her eyes rolling back, her mouth set in a rictus of torment. I do not think she knew who we were, nor what was happening to her. I pray that she did not. We had sent Mina away, but later I spied her crouching in the corner, eyes fixed on her mother's face, a high-pitched keening issuing from her throat, such as I, had, I have heard a leveret make when it is taken by a fox. Tazen's face across the bed was as expressionless as a carven idol in a temple. From between lips that never seemed to move, he chanted invocations to the ancient Punic gods in a guttural dialect I did not recognize, a deeper counterpart to his, his daughter's lament, as if they prayed in tandem, a sound that stood the hair up on the back of my neck. Sometimes he spoke his wife's name. That too was an invocation. Augustine came to me and touched my shoulder. Then he moved me gently away and took my place, for he could see I was exhausted. I moved to the foot of the bed. My sleeves rolled up and bloody to the elbows was wiping her hands. She had just examined Neath, feeling for the child inside her. She looked at me and with a tiny gesture shook her head. Then she drew me to the door. The baby is dead, she whispered. I must cut it out. I shuddered when she explained what she must do, but I nodded and straightway began to gather what she required. Hot water, clean cloths, a needle and sheep gut for thread. From her basket, she withdrew a linen cloth, which she laid on the foot of the bed. She placed the dreadful instruments of her art the long bronze needle with a blunted end, a length of garroting wire attached to the eye, one end running down the needle shaft and wound around a wooden toggle, a long-handled bronze spoon and knife, its blade serrated and razor sharp. She was as calm, as practiced, as if she laid a table for a meal. When all was ready, I lifted Mina in my arms, Come, little one, I said, though I knew she did not hear me. This is something you should not see. I carried her, unresisting, to Lena's apartment three floors up. I passed her to Lena, then checked on a Deodatus. Mercifully, was sleeping. I stood a moment looking down at him, then briefly touched his head. He shifted and put two fingers in his mouth, but did not wake. Will my mother die? A voice asked from the darkness. In the light from a single oil lamp, I saw Gil. He was hunched on the floor by the side of the bed, his back against the wall, his knees drawn up against his chest, minding his siblings still, as if I had forgotten my promise earlier to let him go out and play. I went to him and kneeling touched his shoulder. I do not know why I did not gather him in my arms and crush him to my breast as any mother would who seeks to comfort a child who is frightened, lonely and bereft. Perhaps it was his faithfulness, 
the dogged patience of his vigil, the way he spoke so calmly, but it conferred on him a kind of dignity. In that moment, he seemed to me full grown and not a child at all. And so I told him the truth. The baby is dead, I said. We are trying to save your mother now. He nodded once, then turned away, dismissing me. The sight of him, alone and watchful, came near to breaking me. Oh. Wow. And, and that scene is completely fictional. Hmm. <laughs> if that's fiction, then I don't want... <laughs> There's so, uh, wow. I mean, I, it's standard for me to, to have sort of two horns of ideas jump out at me at once. Um, but here I have like seven or eight. <laughs> the, the first is that there's a part there where you reminded me of Tupac. Mm. Um, you know, Pac's ability to lay bare reality often in, in a lot of his descriptions of kind of the gritty realities of, of life as he saw them um, are almost shocking. He mm. has a line in one of his about a, a, a woman who's um, well who's basically uh, she's undergone a kind of back alley abortion and mm. he says she didn't know what to keep and what to throw away. Mm. Mm. Oh and you know i i'm 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 not a woman and so i don't but but i've i've responded to it even more strongly as i've seen so many women say how did he know that how did how could he understand not just mm -hmm. the physical materiality but the psychology of that mm -hmm. you know um and, and i've and anyhow so part of your description was like this is as real as Pac. Uh, this is as 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 profound. And then the other, uh, another horn though was was the poetry of the movement between empirical description, and I'm using empirical here not in a realist sense, but in the sense of attention to details. Mm. And then the need for allusion and sim and simile and more almost poetic devices. These kind of very heavy prosaic tools that you're kind of using to carve the scene. But then these these illusions and similes that kind of give it some room to breathe and stuff I, i'm i'm interested in both sides of that both the the kind of the very uh uh i don't know if if if, if anyone's made a comparison to tupac with your writing before but <laughs> never I see it. and it's marvelous <laughs> thank you what a compliment but, yeah um and 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 in some sense these converge around lyricism and and i'm just yeah. fascinated always by the the the, the sometimes the unhelpful distinction between the poetic and the prosaic right right, um, right. And, and i think you're doing all that there but beyond just also the voice and the orality and thinking about augustine's oral rhetorical sense of the word and all these things mm -hmm. i'm just mm. I'm, I'm really undone here thank you so much for doing that if you could maybe make some comments about that yeah. random stuff i gathered there because i'm quite moved well, by all this well as a novelist, um, my instinct is to the, the it's the phys, it, 
The lyricism lies in the physicality itself. It, 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 the, the beddedness, the, the thisness of it. Um, it, 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 the lyricism can't, or the ideas, or the themes, or what have you, can't just float around. Can't can't orbit the earth. It it has to be in the earth. It has to be there. It, you know, and the way to do that, um, just as a sort of practical matter, is that words sort of like clay you, you, you've got to get in there and you've got to work them um, and so what I was trying to do was multifold I was trying to give as truthful um, an account of a experience in all its myriad details and physicality but at the same time, I was also trying to give a sense of the momentousness of this experience, not just to everybody involved, but on an existential level. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is birth and death, mm -hmm. death and birth. And that's one of the major themes in the whole novel. And is also, of course, a major theme um, uh, 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 a major underlying theme about the confessions because he's converted, he's been reborn. Um, so I'm trying to be truthful about everything. Mm. <laughs> you know, the reality, uh, reality, and reality is the existential reality as much as it is the smell and the taste and the sound or a little boy's tremendous courage. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when I wrote that about this little boy, I was thinking of my eldest son. Sure, sure. Um, the, little, the little man, and what a tragedy it is for him to have to be a man mm -hmm. when he's only a boy. Mm -hmm. He should be outside. Mm -hmm not keeping vigil to his dying mother. That's right. Oh. So it, it works on, hopefully, it works on a whole bunch of levels, but simultaneously so yes. that it, it's a commute, com, um, cumulative effect. Right, it's and, irreducible. And, uh, exactly, and I, I sort of want to render you silent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> look, I, 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 was, I was going to allow that to maybe be the last note, but there's one other thing in that bundle of reactions I had, which I, I'd like to maybe, you know, uh, invite you to respond to one last time. And I, I am aware of your time, uh, but, um, you know, the confessions of... X and Una and all these things can give an impression of a kind of third person distance. Mm. Whereas in that passage, what I'm reminded of is that one of arguably the most dramatic things you do is also phenomenological in the sense that you give an I, a first yes. person voice 
to this person who has had no subjectivity in that literal sense of the subject, the kind of subject they are in a sentence related to a predicate, right? Right. And, and that, that enlivens, that gives life to this person. It, it gives them a psychology, it gives them emotions, and it allows us to, in some sense, um, encounter a person. It's yeah. a personalization, right? Not just yeah. I would I would say far more than a characterization, right? It's a personalization, right? And you know, personalization and the thought of unamuno is what happens mm. uh, whenever love and, and suffering are uh, happen. <laughs> We become yeah. persons in in the kind of in the baptisms of of love and suffering. Um, yeah. That's yep. all over this passage. I wonder if there's anything you might say about this very specific sense of personalization uh, and, and perhaps as it relates to love and suffering here. Well, um, the, it's interesting. The first person, of course, I knew that it had to be the first person because Augustine's are in the first person exactly. and Una deserves the first person. Absolutely. And so I made that choice, and then I got writer's block for a year <laughs> because I couldn't, I couldn't find her voice. Um, history told me that she was, if you like, a um, social, economic strata, uh, and that as a woman and as from that lower social strata than Augustine in Carthage, she would be illiterate. If she, I didn't know how to write an illiterate woman. Mm -hmm. so, so I sat on that for almost a year and sort of pulled my hair out. And, and, and I sort of basically said to Augustine, all right, Augustine, you know, if you want me to write this book, Bloody well, help me. Oh, wow. It's very kind. And then one day, well, yeah, very kind. <laughs> one, day, um, one day, I had a complete brainwave. I mean, it was almost like, I mean, not literally, okay, so I'm not crazy, but, but it was almost like Augustine goes, hey, dumbass. Yeah. You know, how, don't, don't you think in 17 years of living with me, I would have taught her to read and write? Of course. And the light bulb went off. And that of day I sat down and wrote the opening chapter, um, which is in her voice, but it's a retrospective. So by the time she's saying this, he has, um, she has, you know, become literate. Mm -hmm. um, and then as far as love and suffering, um, perhaps... Perhaps it's good to end with a very short um, bit on that to answer. Perfect. Please To do. answer it. Okay. Um, and I guess I'm sort of, I'm sort of giving it away a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, um, well, maybe, mm, all right. Um Across from me is a doorway, narrow and dark, out of which the young man comes each morning to fill the water jars. Outside where I sit, the world shimmers, mirage-like, 
a scorching brightness that dazzles my eyes. Beyond the doorway, a shadowed world, death's antechamber, through which must soon pass. I wait patiently for the sun to set, for the bells to ring out the day's last prayers before the night, the courtyard emptying, growing silent. Now I am alone except for he who lies nearby. All the frenzied world he loved now shrunken to its sounds, the smell of food cooking over the evening fires, the faint flicker of the lamps, the rustling of the pear tree as a wind picks up from the west, the whispers and soft footfalls of the death chamber. Rising, I enter the door. I touch the iron ring on the chain around my neck my son's last gift to me, apart from his love. I take it off and hold In my pocket, the note Augustine left me when he told me of our son's death, a single line, it is yearning that makes the heart deep. Before me is a passageway lit by a single oil lamp in a niche, the flame winnowing along its length as I softly close the door. I hear faint voices, the sound of footsteps moving away. Behind a doorway to my right, I hear murmuring, a soft chant, like someone praying. I push open the door and step into a room. No room save that which comes from an open window through which I see the pear tree, its branches black against a blood red sky. I see a man on a bed propped up on pillows, eyes closed, lips moving, the voice familiar but his body unknown to me, his face so gaunt the flesh seems molded to the bones, his arms above the coverlet wasted, wrinkled like old leather, his breathing a harsh and painful susurration, chest shuddering with the effort of each breath. On the walls are sheets of papyrus with words written in bold black letters. They rustle in the breeze from the open window. As I get nearer, I see that they are the penitential psalms and Augustine is reciting them from memory. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my iniquity and my sin is ever before me. It is I, I say. He smiles, but his eyes remain closed. His lips do not cease to move. I step close beside his bed, take the son's ring and thread it over the fourth finger of his left hand. His skin feels dry, scaly, so unlike the flesh I knew long ago when we were young, firm and warm and strong, without blemish or taint. Yet the shape of his hand is the same, the bones and sinews, the wrist bones so delicate for a man, almost womanly, the architecture of his body as familiar to me as my own. He opens his eyes and looks at me. Suddenly, Augustine is there, not the broken man upon the bed, nor the bishop, 
nor the shadowy figure in the atrium where I did not have the courage to light the lamps and look into his eyes for fear I would see my own suffering figured there, him saying over and over, our son is dead. Here is the youth I once knew, the man into whose keeping I gave my heart and soul and body, the father of my son. Here is he who caused me such sorrow. And the years fall away, and we are young again in the church, Matt, a shaft of sunlight lighting up his eyes, my gaze dazzled by the sight of him, and all pain dies away, all bitterness. He lifts his left hand and looks at the ring then, slowly, turns over his right hand and opens it. Resting on his palm is the shell he once gave me, the shell I thought I lost long ago. I lay down neath statue on the table beside his bed and take the shell. It is warm from his hand. I broke my trust with you, he Forgive me. In answer, I place my lips upon his lips. His flesh is hot with fever, but the shape of his mouth is the same, the feel of him the same. I cannot see him for the tears that blind my eyes, but I can feel his hand holding mine. I am the living heart of a tree uncovered by the axe, still pliable, still green and full of sap. I stand beside him and hold his hand. Once I lift a cup of water to his lips and he drinks. When the room grows dark, I light a lamp so I can look upon his face and he can look upon mine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1, and special thanks to Suzanne Wolf. I would like to again thank my sponsors. Give Us This Day, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Whippensock Publishers, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, The Juan Diego Network, and Commonweal Magazine. And special thanks once again to my dear friends at Solidarity Hall. The friends of the show are the Commonweal Podcast, the Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Cush Classics. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to our wonderful sponsors and our featured sponsor today, Solidarity Hall, and all the wonderful friends of the show. The friends of the show are media and people who I uh, listen to, who I sometimes appeared on, and with whom I want to uh, share some fellowship on folk phenomenology. You'll also find a tip jar, and uh, as the season winds down, uh, I'm trying to 
put together uh, as many funds as I can uh, to start to kickstart the fundraising efforts for season two. There's a few upgrades, including upgrades that will prevent any connection issues in the future. Also some better quality uh, across the production. Please share this episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform and also follow us on social media and feel free to mention us and talk about us there. One more thing, we have a lot of authors on this show. We have a lot of people who are doing work on this show. Uh, We try to link to their websites and their materials. I know uh, Kaya Oaks just had a book release uh, from earlier in the season. Uh, We have uh, so many wonderful things from our guests to share out there. And so I would encourage you to really support not only the sponsors and the friends of the show, but also the guests on the show. And I would say uh, you just have to go and get The Confessions of X by Suzanne Wolf after the performance and the reading we heard from her today. Next week, we have Alessandra Harris, uh, another author, uh, an author of fiction, and also one of the founding editors of Black Catholic Messenger. And my conversation with her was so powerful because it truly um, worked between those different, one might say, mediums of journalism and editorial writing to the work of story, including its political and religious and consciousness raising work. So please be sure to not miss out on next week's episode with Alessandra Harris. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by Sam Rocha. That's me. To find out more about me and my work, you can visit my website at www.samrocha.com. Well, it's time to go out and love the world. Dilexit Mundu. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, It's because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, I don't know the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Love Mm -hmm. is where you find it. Mm -hmm. It's where you find it. Mm -hmm. It's where you find love. Mm -hmm. It's where you find it. And you don't know where you know where it'll carry you. And it is a terrifying thing. Love. It is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And I'm through the eyes of our ears. We see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.